Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me on the show today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Chris Dillow. We're also delighted to welcome two special guests, Lee Robertson, Chief Executive Officer at Investment Quorum and Colin Lowe, a Chartered Financial Planner at King's Fleet Wealth. Now, Today we're going to be talking about should you sell in May and we'll also look at how to use an ISA to supplement pensions income, how to play investment trust discounts and premiums and we'll also give you an update on events at Alliance Trust. It's May Day which if history is any guide warns us of low equity returns over the next six months and this is summed up by the well-known investment rhyme sell in May and go away. If you're going to follow this advice, you'd sell your stocks this week and hold the proceeds in cash for a few months and then you'd then buy your stocks again, typically around Halloween. Now, Chris, um, you've been writing about um, selling May and I wondered what, what's, what's the evidence that you found for this? Well, the evidence is absolutely amazing. Since 1966, the All Share Index has given a total return, that's including dividends, after inflation, of minus 0.7% from May Day through to Halloween. That compares to a return of 8.9% from Halloween through to May Day. So that's a difference of 9.6 percentage points, which is absolutely enormous. Wow. But most people don't um, believe the advice to sell in May. There's been a lot of scepticism around. Do you think they're being reasonable? They're being partly reasonable. Um, It is the case that the most likely outcome in May is that the market rises. It's risen in 28 of the last 49 summers. The reason for the negative return is that there's quite a hefty chance of big falls, but very little chance of a substantial rise. And there, is a, there are costs involved in, in selling, you know, dealing costs, and you might, you might get a tax liability. And that could be a reason for, for staying in the market, albeit reducing your expectations. But those of us who can do so costlessly, for example, shifting funds within a pension fund, um, I personally act, actually do that and have done so this morning. I shifted my pension fund from 50-50 equities cash into 100% cash. But I've left other funds in equities. Ah, right. So you've you've moved the assets that are easy to to move into cash and and it's a pain sort of painless transfer. And what do you think um, are the the reasons behind the phenomenon of, um, of the summer months? I think the most plausible reason has been suggested by a chap called Mark Camstra at York University in Toronto. He says that our appetite for risk is seasonal. We've become more optimistic in the spring, and that drives share prices up, and we've become pessimistic as the nights draw in, in, in the autumn, and that drives prices down. And I think this explains why there's so much reluctance to sell in May. It's because we feel optimistic then and we don't feel like selling. Obeying the selling May rule requires us to go against our instincts and that's very difficult to do. Now, Lee, do you, do you ever, would you ever consider advising your clients to sell in May? Um, 
I, I don't think I would. It, I mean, we're very long-term investors with our clients. We're talking about we're financial planners, so we're talking about clients on their lifetime financial journey. Um, I think there is some historical evidence there. I agree with Chris, but I think it's becoming um, it, it, it's less sure now. And if you're coming out of equities in a long-term plan, going to current cash rates or current fixed interest rates, um, it's pretty shocking. So I, I think stick for the long term. I think it's incredibly difficult to time markets. Um, and I, you know, I commend Chris if he's doing well at this. Uh, but just missing the upswing when it comes back in is very detrimental to a portfolio. Mm. So we, we tend to stay the course with clients. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that I think you've identified is if you sell in May, where are you going to go to? Where, where are the decent returns from safe assets such as cash and that they, they aren't really there? No, and yeah. I think we also have some, um, some things we've never had before going on with client portfolios. We've got quantitative easing in Japan and Europe, which seems to be driving equity markets. We've had a pretty much a seven-year bull run. So I think we probably are due a correction. But in a long-term portfolio investment strategy, I go back to stay the course. Colin, um, do you do you believe in the in the evidence for selling May, and would you um, ever talk to your clients about do, following that strategy? I would probably look at the evidence, and obviously, uh, I'm sure Chris has got his facts right. I wouldn't dispute those. I suppose we'd also have to be reasonable enough to consider at the moment if you're moving into deposits when you allow for product charges. The likelihood is that your return is barely going to be in the positive territory anyway. So if the average total return Return is 0.7% over the last 49 summers, then you're marginally going to beat that, um, even assuming deposit rates. But then the issue is, when do you move back in? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you do it on the 1st of November every time? I don't know what Chris's view is on that. Chris, when are you going to go back in? I'm going back in on the 1st of November. Uh Ah, right. It's by on Halloween. Ah, right. And... um, in terms of the cash rates that you're getting, does that does that worry you? I mean, you say it's within your pension that you've moved yeah. your your um, assets to cash. Well, Are you getting a decent none of us, return? None of us like low returns on cash, but we should remember why returns on cash are so low, and that's precisely because. Global central banks are still very worried about the state of the state of the world economy, and there's there's no reason to suppose that equity returns will be high just because interest rates are very low. And remember that zero might not sound a great return, but it could be a lot lot worse in equities. And, and history shows that there is that small chance of things turning very very nasty over the summer. Of course, we, we, we have a general election next week, which means a lot of investors have been selling out of their UK equities in anticipation of that, not just the sell in May rule. Do you think that will influence people, or it should be influencing people? Um, I, I think there's, there is a big concern. Uh, if, I, if I had a pound for every time I've been told the markets have priced this in already, only to watch them plummet on bad news. Um, so I think there is there is definitely some um, scope for investors to be selling down their UK equity exposure, at least in the short term. But I, I'm still not with Chris on coming out to cash. I would just be moving into areas that are still interesting, such as Europe and Japan. Okay. Colin? Yeah, I, I would suggest that the, the, the adage of it's more important about time in the market than timing in the market has much more value, actually, in that if, if someone's looking to use their assets in the next year or two, well, 
don't invest in equities. Um, if you are going to be invested for a longer period of time, then actually short-term fluctuations are something you can't control. And and we would recommend to our clients that they 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 stay invested with the longer term. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Excellent. Well, sounds like good advice, Chris. Um, any final thoughts on um, on this time of the year? Um. What I would say is that remember that there are always reasons with hindsight why the market might have fallen, but we can never see those with foresight. And whilst I agree that long-term returns are likely to to be good, in fact, I've got something coming out on this next week, um, we should be be aware that there is a risk of the market falling. And my personal risk aversion is so high that I've decided to sell in May for that reason. Mm-hmm. And over the years, how many years have you been adopting this strategy, Chris? I've done it on and off um, since since about 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes it, it's worked, you know, and sometimes it hasn't. But uh, even over the last 10 years, or so. We've seen some very nasty falls over the summer. I mean, 2008 were, was the most obvious when the market fell almost 30%, but we saw a 9% fall in to 2011 as well, and a very big fall in, in 2002. Yeah. So I've, I've avoided some nasty losses to some extent. Right. Chris, can I just ask a question on this? I mean, have, has your analysis nailed down which months are the most volatile? Um, September. Right. Okay. is the worst month. Um, the other other summer months are lowish, but but September on average is an absolute stinker. So should we be selling in November? So selling in September and buying in November is that is that a better rhyme really? <laughs> um, I don't I don't think so because returns in in June, July, and August aren't terribly impressive, and and history suggests there's a chance that one or two of them will be pretty poor. So, so for simplicity, sell in May, buy on Halloween is, is the better rule. Uh, now, of course, the other thing here, Chris, though, is this down to the fact that what you're looking at is index returns, whereas, of course, for some of us, we're at strong advocates of having individuals manage money and looking at fund manager performance, and they necessarily don't always... Uh, well, we, we would anticipate that they're not going to be following index performance. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. I am looking at only at index performance. But when I looked at the pattern of sector returns, it seems to be pretty much what you would expect given index performance, so that cyclical and high beta stocks have a very pronounced seasonal pattern and defensive stocks don't. And if, if your portfolio comprises utilities, tobacco uh, and top quality pharmaceuticals, for example, there's probably not much seasonality there. But if it comprises construction and banks, then there certainly is. All right. Well, it's all, they're all fascinating stats. And I think um, it will all come down to your personal appetite for risk and your strategy. And, um, Chris, it's very interesting to hear what you are actually doing with your portfolio. So thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Um, this week's um, portfolio clinic features an, um, a 59-year-old investor who has been investing for 20 years and he's built up an individual savings account portfolio that's worth more than £200,000. 
and his aim for this portfolio is to use it to supplement his pension income. So he wants to generate income from his ISA. Now, Lee, you are one of the experts on this portfolio. What advice do you would you give to an investor close to retirement who wants to sort of revamp or fine-tune their ISA portfolio to generate income? Um, well, there's some very obvious things, and and of course uh, the, the most obvious is to move into um, within your ISA into stocks or funds which generate yield. Many investors have concentrated on growth in that phase up to retirement. So the simplest thing is to move uh, keep the keep the the asset allocation well diversified. So keep keep an eye on the risk within the portfolio, but just look for income, good yield. Look for funds that are investing in in some of the areas that Chris just mentioned, more defensive stocks, um, utilities good pharmaceuticals, etc., staying away from the cyclical stuff. Uh, that way you're going to get a good, steady yield. Um, and take advantage of, of areas such as property, which are, are generating decent yield at the moment too. Mm-hmm. I think this particular investor was thinking he ought to introduce some commercial property into his portfolio. Colin, do you think that's a good diversifier in, term, in income terms? Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, Property within a portfolio is absolutely essential. I think it's a huge diversifier. It's also a very good income-generating asset. Uh, I think the issue that we've had, and if we look back to 2007, 2008, there were a lot of clients who over-invested, even in commercial property as a as an asset class, um, so why we, I, I think it's just something to be mindful of. We've we've done quite a lot of work examining the endowment funds of Harvard, Yale, and so on, and they have an expectation of holding between five and ten percent in in property within their portfolios. And and I think if successful investors like like them hold that, then that's the cap that we tend to apply to our clients. So how how would you get access to commercial property for your ISA? What would you hold? Um, well, we would look ideally uh, at either an OIC structure or an investment trust structure as being a very liquid way of accessing commercial property. Obviously, there are some clients who within their SIPs might hold real commercial property. And uh, that can also be uh, an issue, a consideration, because if you've got a significant amount of that within your SIP, then really you probably don't want to be holding that in your ISA. But within an ISA, those funds are liquid, they produce good uh, investment yields and uh, are certainly a really good way of diversifying. Mm-hmm. And some of these funds are available from very, very good houses, such as Cames mm-hmm. and Henderson's. The new, the new very tax-efficient structure, the PAIF, the Property Authorised Investment Fund, is well worth considering, um, and that will help on yield too. But that, that helps boost your income, that PAIF structure. It does, yes. yeah. Uh, but I do agree with Colin. You've got to be careful. It, it should be seen as a, a diversifier, uh, and don't go too far with it, it when we're talking about property. What about um, the actual structure of the portfolio? So... You're, you're putting together an income portfolio, but you've got to have some, surely have some underlying capital growth because, you know, retirement can be 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, this chap's trying to retire at 60, so he's got a long, he's got a potentially a long uh, career ahead of him in investment he does i mean this this word longevity that's used a lot i mean i it, i think we had a system in the uk of pension of retirement that that you retired and it was almost like the end of your investing career somehow because you bought an annuity well we know that's all been swept away and for, for many years lots of people have been thinking about this uh with with luck actuarially we're going to live to be into our 
solid late 80s. So we have to stop thinking about at retirement, I stop investing. So all the rules hold true. Stay diversified, stay international, look for yield, but also look for capital growth because you've got that very insidious thing, inflation, eating away at the value of your of your income. Colin, any thoughts on I, I totally agree with that. This? Yeah, uh, and again, I think in, in next week's um, article in terms of looking at the portfolio, then we've got exactly that same issue. Someone who is realising that they're going to be living a long time, they want to be able to pass their assets down a generation. And and these are absolutely key things. The, the one way that we would maybe run things slightly different to Lee's, which I think it works very well, actually, I think Lee's process works very well, is that we would just be looking for a total return mandate, really. Uh, because in our it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, it, it doesn't matter whether you take the funds from uh, income or from capital. And increasingly, with many platforms now, you have the option of saying, I would like £100 a month, £200 a month, and that will be sent out to you. And we find for most of our clients, that just helps with their budgeting. Okay, so so for tax reasons, you don't need to focus on income and growth in an ISA, basically. No, you don't. Um, uh, uh, There there is a a bit of an issue with investors at the moment, of course, because what we've seen is yields falling. Um, And that's very hard to deal with when you're in retirement, when you're when your earned income stops, um, and we've just seen yields coming down and down and down, QE is is hurting in some areas. It's helping growth stocks, but less on on income stocks. Uh, so we, you know, two or three years ago, for clients, we were getting good, solid five, six, seven percent yields, uh, particularly through uh, the use of bonds. That's just not there at the moment. I mean, some some we're now paying to park money in bonds somewhere uh, internationally. So that's a big issue for investors. They've got to think about that. Okay. Just just thinking on the tax consequences, again, I know you've been doing quite a lot of work on people educating them on drawdown and, and the merits of that. Of course, one of the plus points now is the ability to then control your income in drawdown and to then, if you have an ISA running alongside, control your income there too. And just one very obvious thing that we've actually been working with a number of clients on is actually why not reduce down what you're getting on your drawdown and increase what you're taking on your ISA because A, that can have a significant income tax benefit today, but also with the new benefits in terms of being able to pass drawdown down a generation in a more tax-efficient manner, that's actually from an inheritance tax perspective a huge benefit too. So it's just one thing that, whereas perhaps people focused on pension income on drawdown and ignored their ISA thinking it was growing tax-free and that was very efficient, that those things are both true, but actually why not play the two off against each other? Right. Well, that's some very sensible advice there. Thanks. Thanks very much. Staying on the income theme, many investment trusts that offer attractive yields have been on premiums for a number of years. This means that their price is more than the underlying net asset value of their portfolios. However, some sectors are on such excessive premiums that analysts are concerned about their sustainability. Now, Leonora, you've been looking at this issue and in particular how to navigate investment trust premiums and discounts. Which sectors have you found are looking particularly overheated? Right. Um, well, there's a, there's a number out there. Um, there's some obvious candidates such as property, infrastructure and fixed uh, income because they offer attractive yields. Um, and some analysts are saying if you want to de-risk, maybe you should reduce a bit of exposure to them. One of the particularly heated well, sectors, so it's, so it's arguably heated sectors, is um, UK commercial property direct trusts. 
No, they're doing really well. They had a great 2014 and everything would suggest um, their net asset value is going to continue to do really well in 2015. But um, some analysts are saying that this is now priced in with the excessive premiums. So um, you um, you might want to either um, sort of like hold fire or, or possibly reduce, depending on your outlook. I mean, this, this makes it a bit of a problem for the reader who was talking about earlier who wanted to diversify into commercial property. If, they're, if all the investment mm. trusts are on premiums, that's particularly difficult, isn't it, Colin? Uh, yeah, it is, um, but investment trust isn't. Investment trusts aren't the only fruit, are they? Um, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of managers who manage in an investment trust environment also run open-ended versions of those funds, which I think a lot of people overlook. Um, so don't dismiss those. That Obviously, I think property has a huge benefit to be held in an investment trust because of the ability to borrow and, and leverage against that. And therefore, um, you know, redemptions aren't such a problem. Um, but, but don't dismiss the open-ended versions altogether. I think there was there was one option that you identified yeah. that might be a goer in the investment right. trust, wasn't there, Leonora? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not we're not saying necessarily to sell, you know, any, any um, property investment trust. But a slight alternative might be um, an IC Top 100 fund TR property. Now, this large invests in securities rather than direct property. But um, it's got very strong returns. Uh, it's done very well over the years. And is actually trading on a small discount to NAV, um, which is quite a contrast. Um, the yield's not quite as high as on the direct ones. It offers around 2.5%, but he's still getting you know, strong total returns because of its growth. Yeah, so that's, that's, that could be a good option to consider there. Um, were there any sectors um, in your research, Leonora, that were starting to look good value again? Yeah, in particular UK sectors. Um, and um, I singled out UK equity income and uh, UK smaller companies. There is a kind of a simple broad reason why these are swinging out to discounts, um, especially when UK equity income was in premiums. And I think that's jitters before the general election, concerns that there might be, you know, an exit from Europe um, and investors, you know, maybe being nervous on the UK. Uh, Analysts are saying this, you know, you shouldn't necessarily... you shouldn't necessarily worry about this. I've got um, a quote here from an analyst who's saying that, uh, uh, particular, in particular with the UK equity income, um, they invest in large blue chip stocks, um, which have diversified earnings overseas, which should offset any potential sterling weakness. So uh, it could be a, you know it could be a good time if you need to top up or if you don't have any if you're starting a portfolio it might be a good time to buy um, UK equity income investment trusts because they they're likely to go back up to um, a premium because uh, well income's obviously a popular area okay. and no one's expecting interest rates let's say to rise very greatly even if there are some you know small rises okay. in the autumn so that's a good hunting ground mm. then really for for someone after a bit of a bargain. Lee, how, how do you advise investors to navigate in, uh, investment trust premiums and, and discounts? Uh, well, we do hold investment trust within investor portfolios, but we, we will we'll always be looking for the two exploits, as Leonora has just said, where there's, where there's a discount. We don't chase ones at premium because we just think we're not getting the value when we buy in. So they're a relatively small part of our portfolios, but we're always looking for those discounts. And we agree that UK equity income on the long term is still a very good bet. So that's an area that we've been also looking at for clients. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you already hold if you already hold a lot of um, big FTSE 100 companies directly in your portfolio, you might want to watch any duplication there. Um, you know, if you hold uh, some of the investment trusts, they'll, they'll also hold your, your stocks. Absolutely so, right. Yeah. A, a stock overlap is something that a lot of people ignore uh, or, or aren't even aware of. And that's a huge issue that you're, you're effectively buying a stock more than once. Uh, now, holding it more than once isn't an issue, but to hold it seven, eight or more times, uh, you're, you're just effectively buying a tracker fund. And if that's what you want to buy, then fine. Buy a tracker fund, but don't pay money. Yeah, do it much cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> so you really have to drill down into what each each fund in your portfolio is is holding, what its top ten holdings are, and, and see if there's any overlap. Absolutely, yeah. there's no point. There's no point buying lots of funds to diversify, only to find that you're overlapping, as, as Colin said. So um, just 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 be aware. Okay. Uh, you can do it much cheaper without buying lots and lots of funds. Great stuff. Right. Well, one of the big stories um, this week was peace finally breaking out at Alliance Trust. Now, this is a giant global um, growth investment trust, and it's been battling with an activist investor called Elliott Advisors, which wanted to add three members to Alliance Trust board. Now, Leonora, you've been uh, following this story. What has Alliance Trust agreed with with activist shareholder Elliott's? Um, yes, well, Alliance Trust yeah, was supposedly going to be a showdown at uh, Wednesday AGM, but uh, the day before uh, they announced they'd come to an agreement, um, Elliot's withdrawn its resolutions to add um, three of its candidates to the board. But in return, Alliance Trust has actually appointed two of these. So I don't know, I suppose you could say in a way Elliot's had its way. Um, but what Alliance Trust does get out of that is that until the next AGM in 2016, Elliott Advisors has committed to support the board and management on all other resolutions. And um, they've both agreed on what they describe as certain mutual non-disparagement undertakings, e.g. they're not going to like mudsling at each other in public like they have done for the past month. And Elliot won't call a general meeting or seek to agitate against a company um, again until 2016. In private, though, I think things are going to go on. I mean, Alliance Trust said, um, you know, they were very pleased with this because it meant that uh, it could put, uh, you know, any concerns about being made to sell its subsidiaries, Alliance Trust Savings and Alliance Trust Investments on hold and outsourcing the management to a third party. That could also go on hold. And they seem to be very pleased about that because those are things that Elliot were pushing for. However, Elliot have indicated that um, actually in private, they're going to continue be pushing for all sorts of things and going to be a very activist shareholder. So I think there's going to be some tough negotiating behind the scenes, even if we're not going to see, the, let's say, sort of like the public showdown that we've been um, subjected to over the past month. I mean, the, the trust hasn't had great performance no, over I mean, the long term. That's has one it? of its grievances, which, yeah. poor performance, and the wide discount to net asset value, which has actually come in a bit as a result of this um, pressure from Elliot. All right. So if the di- the discounts moved in a bit, that means um, investors who who really don't want to stick with it anymore might have a slightly better opportunity to get out. Is that is that right? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll tighten further, get better. So I wouldn't like particularly like to call a judgment on that. Um, 
Colin, do you have any thoughts on Alliance Trust? Is it one you'd, you've ever held in your clients' your clients' portfolios? We don't hold it in any of our clients' portfolios, and it is one of those huge mysteries of life, isn't it? Because you wonder why is such a behemoth of a fund so big when its performance has generally yeah. been so disappointing, mm. and you just wonder how did it get to this size? And um, in some ways, that it's good that someone has stirred the nest uh, to to try and cause a change. Um, where I think our investors do have some concerns is we do have some investors who use Alliance Trust Savings uh, as a means of a platform uh, of holding their assets. And, uh, and obviously that's a, an issue as to uh, is that pricing model which they're promoting very aggressively going to be one that they're going to be able to sustain or yeah. are those costs ultimately going to go up? It's just for those who don't know, um, Alliance Trust actually owns Alliance Trust Savings as one of its business, underlying businesses. So if there's pressure on performance that possibly could impact that business too it could and, yeah. and the alliance trust savings the platform um lots of investors now use a platform to invest as opposed to holding direct uh, and it has a fixed fee model so it's been very attractive to investors as opposed to some of the other platforms which charge percentage-based fees and as colin says how just how sustainable is it we know lots of platforms are actually struggling to be profitable uh, and this very aggressively priced, very cheaply priced platform, just how sustainable will, will that be long term if they're trying to undercut everyone else with all the rest that's going on around with Alliance Trust at the moment. Yeah. But that would be something for investors just to keep an eye on rather than feel they've got to take action on now. Oh, oh yeah, yes. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting yes. for one second that people who are on there and happy on there should come off, but they should just be aware. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a the, as we've just seen over the last few weeks, and Leona has just said, there's been a lot of trouble at Alliance Trust. Uh, personally, I think they've just saved face. They've given in on these two uh, supposedly independent directors, uh, who, but who were found by Elliot, which is interesting. Uh, so I think that's just to try and calm things um, until 2016. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your insights. And thank you very much um, to my special guests, Lee Robertson of Investment Quorum and Colin Lowe of Kingsfleet Wealth and to Leonora Walters and Chris Dillo of the Investors Chronicle. You can read more about investing for income, investment trust premiums and Alliance Trust in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.